there's no reason to jump in and buy yeah. anything that doesn't cash flow in my book. Because now that I've accumulated a pretty sizable portfolio, I could be patient and wait for things. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello, welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexhammer. With me, excited to have David Vernich. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Todd. How about yourself? I'm doing good. So David is a commercial lender with more than three decades of experience in the banking industry. In 2007, he partnered with other investors to purchase real estate and began his journey to generate passive income. David now owns more than 100 homes in Tennessee. Do you still own over 100 homes in Tennessee? I do. Man, that's a lot of homes. <laughs> uh, you're passionate about and you're just helping others reap those benefits, reap the benefits of passive income uh, in their lives. You're an author who wrote a book called Middle Class to Millionaire, Making the Leap to the Next Level. We'll definitely dive into kind of that book. And I really kind of want to understand, you know, kind of your thoughts behind that as well. So with that said, Dave, why don't you uh, just give our listeners a, a bit more about your background and uh, what you're doing today? Okay, great. Yes, Todd. Uh, thanks for having me again. And uh, essentially, what I, when everybody asked me about my <clears throat> origin story, so to speak, uh, it really came at my midlife crisis at age 45. So I'm 60 years mm -hmm. old this year. And at 45, I was still a banker, still am today. And I had four sons, young sons at home. My wife uh, did not work. I was making about $80,000 a year. And I thought I was doing okay, not great, but I didn't think I was doing poorly. You know, we never worried about where our next meal was coming from. But using the metaphor of a, we were talked earlier about football, using the metaphor of football, um, essentially from age 25 to 65 is 40 years. So your, your career. And so you got 40 years. Uh, each quarter would be made up of 10 years each. So at 45, you're at their halftime. So it's time to go in the locker room, make your halftime adjustments, you know, look at your stats and see how you did. And when I got to the locker room and looked at my stats, I wanted to vomit <laughs> because at the end of the day, I was not going to be able to sustain the standard of living that I had. It was an okay standard of living, but I was hoping it'd be better than that. But just looking at the numbers, the numbers did not pencil out. I was not going to be able to sustain my center to living in retirement. And, and you're just looking at kind of your, what your 401k at the time, what, what did you have at the time? You know, I, that's one thing I need to go back and check, but I probably had. Well, maybe not financially how much, but like yeah. what type of investments did you? Yeah, it was, it was strictly doing what the financial planners tell you to do, which is, you know, put out, cut expenses to the bone as much as you can stand and sock everything into a 401k. So yeah. that's what I was doing. So, so the 401k, so you looked at that 401k, looked at your savings and went, wow, you know, I, I got to work until I'm what, 90 to, to live till I'm 95. Yeah. If I wanted to live the <laughs> lifestyle I wanted yeah, that's what I have to do. Yeah. And so yeah. I thought I was doing everything like I was told to do and it just, the numbers didn't work. And really what it came down to applying, you know, applying a, a withdrawal rate of about 4%, which is what most financial planners say, if you want your money to last all the way through 30 years of retirement, you can only draw about 4% a year at. So a million dollars in retirement, you can only pull $40,000 at that, at that calculation. 
And uh, I was making 80. So basically it's like, that gets me halfway there. Wow. And then social security was only going to pay maybe 30, you know, back then. Yeah. So I was short and I didn't want to be short on my, on my uh, income. I wanted to maintain or increase my uh, lifestyle. Well, that's what, that's what I was going to say is, you know, that to me is the sad part about where a lot of people kind of feel like they want to be at retirement is they go, well, I can downsize. We'll downsize. We'll live a little bit more frugally and all this. And I'm going, why, why, like, why would you want to do that? Don't, isn't retirement meant to be like these kind of golden years? Like you're retiring because you worked hard your whole life. And now you're saying, Hey, I'm going to have some fun. I'm going to enjoy myself. So why would you think that it would be a good idea to cut your expenses? Don't you want to say, Hey, I'm making 80 now. I want to make sure when I retire, we're able to spend a hundred now. Right. So I want to be able to do more things, not less things. If I, if I ever retire, um, that's what I want to do. And that's what I wanted to do too. And the path I was on was not going to get me there. Yeah. So, so basically as a, a banker and a loan officer, I had to kind of look, kind of do a little cheat code and look at my loan portfolio and said, now who's actually doing what I need to do. And by and large, the answer came to be small business owners. Yeah. Um, but most small business owners that I knew basically were in the same boat in the sense that they weren't saving enough for retirement either. And they were working as hard or harder than me as a banker. Mm. So when I really dug even deeper, I came to the conclusion only one group of people and mm. my entire loan portfolio had it figured out. And these were the real estate investors. <laughs> and so you said, okay, these guys got to figure it out. I'm going to, I'm going to join them. So when, you know, when, when I introduced you talked about, um, you partnered with other investors. How, how did you partner with these other investors? So basically what I did was I contacted some folks that I had helped get into the real estate business years ago. I had, I had been at this point in my career through probably five bank mergers from different banks in my entire career in banking. So I would be moved. I would move to another bank when a bigger bank bought us. Because working for a big bank is like working for the federal government, you know, mm. very bureaucratic, not very yeah. fun. Yeah. Yeah. You probably and, can't <laughs> can't use much of your, you know, personal personality or personal skills to build those relationships. I, I know as a as somebody who lends from banks, uh, definitely don't love the the big banks. So no. Small banks are so much more fun to actually have do business with. Exactly. <clears throat> so that's what I was I would continue to move to smaller and smaller banks to make sure I could go get things done for my clients. And in the in instances, I would also have old clients that were still at the old banks that I had banked with. Well, in this case, when I came to that revelation that, hey, I need to do real estate investing, this is not something new that I never thought of before. Actually, the reality of the situation was I had thought about doing real estate investing about 10 years before that. The problem is I had, as I said, four young sons at home. Um, my wife didn't work. And I didn't have a lot of extra time. I wanted to be with my kids and I wanted them to have a dad that went to sporting events. So I had no weekends free to go, you know, find houses and fix them up. And I also, frankly, was very bad at anything having to do with home improvement or renovations to the point where I didn't even like doing anything in my own house. My wife would ask me to fix something and I would say, hey, honey, my the my favorite tool in the tool belt is the checkbook. Let's find somebody to do this. 
and save me the time from doing it. So I would, I would never do things even in my own house. So I couldn't imagine on these people that are doing this on the, on the side, going in there and tearing walls out and redoing a house. That's <laughs> just, it just wasn't my skill set whatsoever. Yeah. And I had no desire to even learn. I mean, if you said, okay, let's say you're fired from your job. Do you want to go learn how to do this? And the answer would be, Heck hell no, no. <laughs> still don't want to do it. Yeah. So I knew I had a big weakness and that weakness was that I couldn't do most, if not all the components that you needed to be a successful real estate investor. So I broke it down into four steps. Essentially, you had to be able to find properties that would work. The numbers would work. Yep. You'd have to fix the property up if it needed repairs, which I've already explained. I, I knew I wasn't going to enjoy doing that. Right. Then then you had to work with uh, property management to get somebody in that house. And then you had to finance it You know, at the, at the end. And I basically said, you know what? Out of all those things, I think I can find houses. Because this when I started, it was 2007. So right at the financial crisis. And that was another factor that motivated me to jump into the real estate pool. We're at 2007, in your in the market you were in, were the prices already had they, had they already declined quite a bit, or were they still pretty peaked? No, they were they were tanking. They were dropping quick. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So basically, I said this is a once in a lifetime fire sale in real estate. It's now or yeah. never. So I had all these forces coming together at the same time that basically said, this is the time to do it. You're 45. You're not getting any younger. You know, the real estate market's crashing. You've tried multiple other side gigs that didn't work. You know, I tried buying a business, starting a business, doing an Amazon business. I also tried multi-level marketing even one time. None of them worked. If they had yeah. worked out, I kept on doing them. So I'm like, okay, real estate, you're next up on the agenda. What, what do you think? Why didn't they work? Is it, is it, do you ha like have you kind of looked back and reflected on why those other business opportunities didn't work? Was it passion of yours? Was it what what was it? Well, one of the first ones I did actually, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm a I was the high school and college cartoonist from a newspaper. So the first business I wanted to do was basically do these uh postcards for the, the tourists in Nashville and have country music songs on them with hmm. you know, these singing characters and whatever. And actually it was, it was okay, but it's just like, if you sat there and did the math at the end of the day yeah. and, and everything you put into it, even though that was a passion of mine to do cartooning at the end of the day, it just wasn't paying the bills. The, the amount of work it. you put into it, you're making, you know, $10 an hour type yeah. of thing. Yeah. Some change. Yeah. So it yeah, just, my wife, my wife had a passion like that too. And, <laughs> and she, you know, she loved it and yeah. she, well, certainly she made some money doing it, but after she's really looked at it and went, okay, I'm like making 10 bucks an hour. There's no way I can make, you know, maybe I can make 15 or 20 if I get really fast, but I can't, I can't do well. Basically you're getting paid to do a hobby. Yeah. Yeah. That's but exactly, not paid well. That, that was exactly, that was exactly her yeah. conclusion too. So yeah, that, that definitely uh, is not a sustainable business for sure. Right. So yeah, I tried other things that I was more passionate about than real estate, obviously. In fact, real estate is basically a means to an end. And yeah. as a banker, you know, banks, that's their favorite form of collateral real estate by far. So any business out there that comes to them, if they don't have real estate, they're going to take a look at those things, but it's a whole lot smoother process if there's collateral with real estate backing mm -hmm. up the loan. Yeah. Yeah. It's always worth something, right? right? Even if the business fails, at least we have the real estate to fall back on. And not that we want it, but at least we have it. And we have something there. 
So basically with all that, I, I went and found one of my old customers and I said, Hey, would you teach me how to, how to flip a house? Knowing that I mm. wouldn't like 99.9% .9 of what they taught me. I was just going to shut up, bite my tongue, yeah. do exactly what they said. And then at the end, we were going to do one house together and uh, split the proceeds 50, 50. Uh, <clears throat> I did the house and I was shocked at the time that in 2007 with foreclosures everywhere, one of the hardest parts of, of me getting into real estate was getting a house when there were foreclosures everywhere. Mm. It was such a bizarre time when people were like real estate agents were dropping like flies. So, you, you yep. know, the people you would call or wouldn't return your calls, yep. then you, you got one that did return your call and they would say, Hey, I already sold that to my buddy. And I'm like, well, why did you put your sign in the yard? And it's they basically had to. <laughs> to get, you had to and to get leads for yeah. future deals, you know, and I had some agents say, you can't do what you're doing. Cause I wasn't oh, yeah. the end buyer, you know, all this stuff. Yep. Finally, I had to call my, my mentor and basically say, look, you know, winter's coming. I need to get a house. Can you, and you're getting calls every day from these. So can you just kind of throw me a bone here and give me a house? And the next day they got a house, my first house. So nice. kind of uh, a light bulb kind of came in my head when I saw that. And then the next step was we got to fix up the house. So they gave me the, the paint by numbers, you know, here's what needs, this house needs to be done. Here's the people that we use to do it. Here's what it should cost you. So it was, so, it was really easy from that perspective, since they kind of did all the work for me and I just had to oversee it, meet with the builders, the contractors and yep. make sure the work got done before they got paid. <clears throat> so we didn't get ripped off. And then before we even finished the house, we had somebody knocking on the door and I said, is this house for sale or rent. Well, back in 2007, nobody wanted to buy houses, but there were a lot of people looking for rentals. Mm -hmm. And so they basically moved in the house um, and were in that house until last this past year, 14 oh, wow. and a half years solid before we basically said, Hey, we need to redo this house. You need to move on to the next one. Yeah. So that's kind of the story. So after I finished the house, I went back to my mentor and I said, look, <clears throat> you were teaching me how to do this. The only thing I was trying to figure out was one thing. Where do I add value in the process? Because I knew I stunk at so many things. I didn't know where I fit in. And the only thing that I was able to do that I enjoyed doing was what I did for a living. And that is, the, you know, getting the money, whether that be a loan or getting an investor to partner with us to put the money in. So I yep. basically became their money guy to raise money to do houses. So they didn't have to put a dime of their own money in the property. And we would all share on the equity side, you know, the good and the bad. And thankfully yeah. for the last 15 years, it's pretty much been all good. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely, a, definitely a bonus. You got in at a great time. Although at that time it didn't seem so great, did it? <laughs> yeah. Basically I was running in the uh, building where everybody was running out the exits. Yeah. Yeah, and it does I, make you stop and think when you're like, am I crazy? Or, or, you know, when you go against the, against the grain like that, sometimes it's human nature is like, I know, and I know that I know that this is the best time I'm going to have in decades to buy something, but it's still, you can't help but feel Am I missing something? Well, you can't not hear people, right? right? And so you're hearing the negatives. You're seeing the negatives on the news. You're, you're, you know, I, I got in at 2008, very similar time. Uh, prices have probably dropped even longer, but farther, but they were still dropping in 2008. You know, the right. stuff you're buying for, you know, 100,000 by 2013 was, was a, that same house could have sold for probably 70,000. So, you know, it, it you have to somehow 
look beyond the noise. And I think that's the most challenging part, especially. And I don't know where we're at right now in this market. We might see it again. I don't, I don't see, feel like it's going to be a 2000, you know, seven, eight again, but where are you with that? Are you guys buying still right now today? Or, you know, kind of what's your thought in the market? If you're giving some advice to somebody, what's your, what's your advice? What's your thought? So yes, we we bought something actually December 15th and we got one closing January 19th. So, so we're still, still buying active. and that's because the numbers still work and the yeah. prices are starting to come down. It is starting to to become much more of a buyer's market than a seller's market. So as long as the numbers work, I'll always be in the market. But if they don't work, I'll sit on the sidelines. There's no reason to jump in and buy yeah. anything that doesn't cash flow in my book. Because now that I've accumulated a pretty sizable portfolio, I could be patient and wait for things to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so valuable. Once, it, it, as long as the cash flows, right? It, it, the numbers work. It really doesn't I mean, a little bit, but it doesn't really matter that much of what's going on around you, right? The numbers have to work. The numbers have to work. And then, you know, when everybody's jumping in and paying too much money, that's when I decide to sit sit on the sidelines because I don't bet 100% just on appreciation. Yeah, I have you to, can't. I have, I have to be able to sit there and say, if this doesn't work out, it cash flows and whether it appreciates or not appreciation to me is really the icing on the cake Yeah. because what I'm trying to do is, you know, what I, my original goal when I did this before I went through my first mentorship was to buy one house a year for 10 years at age 45, yeah. put a 20 year amortizing loan on the first house at 45 that would be paid off when I was 65. Mm. And then every year after that, a house would be paid off. Mm. And then I would be generating about a thousand dollars a month in cash flow per house when they're paid off. That was my rough calculations, which was $120,000 plus mm. social security, plus my 401k. So based on that, I thought, okay, now that's, that's a plan that will actually pencil out. And, and it would, uh, obviously you've accelerated that plan. You haven't <laughs> followed that you've done. I think that happens. You know, most people do that. Uh, they say, Hey, well, I'm going to buy a house a year. And so then all of a sudden they're buying 10 a year, but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's a smart plan. And anybody who heard that, I mean, that's, that's a very sound plan that anybody could implement is buying a house a year, putting a 20 year on it. And then when you're 65, boom, you've got one house that's paid off every single year for, you know, I mean, that's, that's a, that's an awesome plan, right? And you can sell those houses if you need the big cash injection, or you can just keep on cash flow, which is the best way, right? Just keep on cash flowing them. Well, that was my original plan until I did the first one. And then I realized real quick, well, this is hard. I mean, it's yeah. really hard to find them and fix them up and all that. And uh, I had limited capacity, financial capacity back then. So mm. I actually did my first house with a $100,000 unsecured line of credit from another banker friend who had lending authority of $100,000. So it didn't have to go to loan committee. Wow. Uh, I was fine as far as on paper. I had a W2 job. I had clean credit. I didn't have excessive personal debt. Yeah. But I probably shouldn't have been able to get over my annual salary and unsecured debt. <laughs> Especially in 2007 as the <laughs> exactly. market's imploding. Right? Exactly. But I knew where to go, you know, to get it. And so that was the easiest part. Then I thought to myself, you know, that's not going to be sustainable to yeah. scale this thing. 
So what I thought is, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to my mentors and say, look, you do all the work, you find the houses, I will come with a, a short term equity partner, who will be able to have the cash or the credit or a combination of the two to buy the house and to fix up the house. And the first person that I pitched this idea to was my next door neighbor, who was a doctor. And I told him, I'm like, look, I'm going to go and learn how to flip a house. And he basically fell on the ground and was laughing at me. <laughs> and the reason he was is uh, because he knew how bad I was. He said, Dave, you send your kids over to me to fix the bikes when their bikes are broken <laughs> and you're going to flip a house. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not me flipping it. It's my, my 14 years experienced partners that do this full time for a living. Yeah. He said, okay, well, let me know how that works out for you. And said, okay. And I came back and said, Hey, it worked perfectly. Here's the numbers. So we bought that house for 70,000. We put 15 into it for 85. Yeah. It appraised for 115. I got a loan for um, 80% of that, paid off the credit line and it cash flowed. Yeah. And I said, you can do the same thing. Now you go to your bank and get $100,000. You're a doctor. They'll yeah. throw the money at you. And that's what he did. He borrowed 100,000, put it in. We paid the interest on it. So he literally never had to put a dime of his own money in there. And now he's got about, 18 to 20 houses with us. So that's to awesome. me, it's just like, okay, this thing works. So I just got to find more guys like that. And I've got the people to do the, all the work because I think there's a whole lot more people in the world like me that don't want to do the work that don't want to go out there and get their hands dirty. That don't want to figure, have to figure this out from A to Z. They just want to plug into a system and say, I don't have to have a hundred percent of a house with a hundred percent of the headaches because yep. I can't do hundred percent of the work, but I'd be happy to take a percentage of it to be able to get in and get out. So that's, that's how I've scaled it. Yeah. I think there's so much that so many people that just you know, are held back because of those kind of limiting beliefs or those fears, right? I, I don't have the skills to fix the house. I don't want to be called at 3am to go, you know, fix a toilet or, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to have to evict the tenant. I just, I, this is something I couldn't do. Oh, whatever that is, I can't find these properties. I don't have time, I, you know, whatever. They've got other resources and, and a lot of times it's the money, but they got other resources to be able to get into these properties and to truly create something powerful, right? I mean, you've created now a retirement plan that most people would be very envious of and you no longer have to decrease your expenses if you so choose when you decide to retire you'll be able to, I mean, you'll be able to spend a lot more if you would like. Um, and which is, in my opinion, the dream of retirement. Well, and you look at the current retirement plan people have, I mean, they're, they're not even supposed to touch that money until 59 and a half without getting a penalty. Yep. And uh, I don't want to wait, you know, the older you get, the less likely you're going to have the best of health or the energy to do all the traveling you want to do. So my wife and I, uh, this past September, when we both turned 60, I took the entire month off first time ever. I took six days without pay to get to get the entire month off, which is no big deal. I had sold a house that I had bought years ago. I had, had given me about $60,000 in, in gains from that house. Mm. And I used all that money and we went to Greece traveling mm. first class for the oh, cool, entire month. And I said, I want to do this like 
every time I can do it before I yeah. turn 65, not wait till I'm 65. Yeah. And even then you don't know if you can do it because not many people are going to drop that kind of money when they first go into retirement. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, let's talk about this book a little bit. I, you know, so I, there's a lot of, I'm sure we're all in the same boat. We've got a lot of friends. We've got a lot of family that you just look and you go, man, they're just not <laughs> going to be set up well for retirement. I, I'm right. just, I'm thinking about a lot of people in my head right now. And it's just like, man, you just, you're setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. Are you ever going to be able to retire first of all? So how do we talk to them about and motivate them to be able to do something a little bit different to actually have a true retirement? Well, I guess that was my big epiphany that a lot of people don't really spend any thought process in that since it's so far in the future. They kind of feel like I'll deal with that later. I've got too many things burning, you know, burning yeah, up my time now. Right. 25 to 65, 35 to 65, 45 to 65, whatever it might be. It feels like a long ways away. I mean, I'm, I'm 40, almost 41 right now. It feels like 60 is like eons away, but it's, it's only 20 years, right? <laughs> but yeah. And if you look back, I mean, it hasn't virtually every year gone faster than the one before every all, all yeah. the time. And you look back and you go, wow, just like, I, I, I look at these, you know, kids that are, and I call them kids. I mean, these people that are like in their twenties, I don't feel like I'm that much older than them. Well, yeah, they feel like I'm that much older <laughs> than them. But for me, it just went so fast that it doesn't yeah. feel like that long ago. Well, now my oldest is 35 years old. And that, and of course, just turning 60 is a little milestone anyway. Um, but the bottom line is I still feel like I'm in my twenties even yeah. today. But yeah. when I look in the mirror, obviously, I don't believe that for a minute. <laughs> um, but to answer your original question, you can't, some people, you can't make a dent in their psyche because they either want to be the ostrich, put the ostrich in the sand yeah. mentality where yeah. I'll deal with it later. There's too much stuff on your, my plate now to deal with this. But the reality is if they don't, the sooner they deal with it, it's kind of like course correction. When you're a sailboat, if you just have a little bit of a course correction now, you don't have to do the hard work at the end and try to catch up, you know, or in the, in our metaphor the football game, you don't have to throw the Hail Mary in the fourth quarter. But uh, sadly for most Americans, when they go into retirement and they, and they use that time that they have to actually look at their situation, it's too late to really do anything about it because you've cut off your main source of income by retiring. Yep. And then you're only going to be able to do one thing and that is cut expenses until you die and hope you die before your money runs out. Yeah. Yeah. That's a sad, that's a sad future, right? You know, hope you die before your money runs out. Right? <laughs> Great plan, right? I'm, I'm yeah, excited. You, I'm excited about that retirement plan. <laughs> uh, yeah. That, that sounds like a horrible retirement plan. I, I hope <laughs> I die quick because man, my money is going to be gone soon. And, and I, by the way, I just, I don't have enough money to do anything. That's like the only thing I can do is sit at home and watch TV and, you know, that's it. Like that doesn't sound fun at all. I want to be out sailing at the ocean and, you know, climbing mountains and you know, whatever else that are going to going to Greece, uh, like you, you know, like you did. Uh, that sounds a lot more fun. So what mainly, you know, your, your book, uh, middle-class to millionaire, um, maybe a couple of the key 
uh, takeaways that that a reader would get out of that book? Um, why why should somebody read that book? Well, the reason I wrote it is because looking back, you know, when you get to 60, you kind of look back on your life a little bit and say, well, what lessons do I know now that I wish somebody had shown me? And that's mm. why I wrote the book. Essentially, I wish somebody had written this book that opened my eyes. And in one way, uh, there's a lot of books out there that I've read, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad being one that people hear a lot. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Cashflow Quadrant, just opening up your mind. But I just didn't understand how important it was to do something as early as possible. Like you're in your early 40s. I didn't have this stuff even on my radar. I was trying things, different things. But essentially, I believed in that myth of the 40-year retirement plan that in the end, the pot of gold is half a pot. And you know you have to keep surviving until the gold runs out. Um, this plan here is so much better because I've been able to accomplish you know, I still contribute to my 401k. I still work a full-time job. But when I did a comparison between my real estate and my 401k, my real estate equity is, is four and a half times more wow. than, than my real estate, my equity, the uh, account balance in my 401k, my 401k, I've been putting money in since I was 22 years old. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's a long time, 22 to 60. And, but I've already surpassed that four times in 15 years. And so wow. I'm able to do things now. And the fact of the matter is I'm not telling people don't do your 401k. I'm saying you're you're missing the boat if that's all you're doing. And you probably, unless you are a highly paid and highly disciplined person on expenses, if you're in that boat, you could probably sock enough money away there to retire comfortably. But that's such a small percentage. I think uh, Fidelity and Vanguard said only about 10% of the uh, of American households will have a million dollars in the 401k uh, to live off in retirement. And and a million dollars is not what 10 it used to be. 10% will only have a million dollars? Yes. Oh my gosh. That is very low. You know, and so the average person in their 60s right now, because I see these studies coming across all the time, the average person has less than 250,000 oh, wow. in the retirement account. And as a banker, when I get personal financial statements for people that apply for loans, it is very rare to see anybody has over a million dollars. Most, most, there's a lot of people that have zero, absolutely nothing. And I'm talking about people in their fifties. They haven't even started mm. yet. Wow. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, it just shows you the power of taking action, right? You're putting stuff in your 401k and that's fine. But in 15 years, you forexed what you did in 38 years. <laughs> I mean, that that that's just the power of taking action, the power of real estate, the power of, you know, just really non-traditional forms of investing uh, that, you know, you're just going to go the 401k route that you're going to get what you're going to get. You're going to get what everybody else is, which is, you know, like you said, less than 10% have a million dollars to retire on. And that's just such a small number. Uh, are you still putting in the, your 401k or did you stop doing that in order to focus on real estate? No, I'm still doing it. In fact, I got a, I got a match to do it. So there's free money on the table. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> You know, essentially, one of the big secrets to me that people don't understand is their capacity to borrow money. Uh, so many people think debt is evil, 
And that's one of the big lessons I learned when I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, being a banker. I mean, that was my job is to get people to borrow money for assets. Yeah. But essentially, it's like there's good debt and bad debt. Consumer debt for cars and your own property that you live in is bad debt. But good debt is what we do as real estate investors. We're buying a house that we don't live in. Somebody else lives in it, pays you a rent that pays that mortgage for you. So that's how you really accumulate wealth is by providing something of value for somebody to live in enough for them to go to work and pay you, pay you rent and uh, build your equity that way. David as a banker and a real estate investor. What's your opinion on what's the right amount of debt to have? You know, some people want to leverage max leverage at 80, 85%. Um, other people are like, Hey, no, let you got to be at you know fifty or sixty percent. Some people say no debt whatsoever. You you already obviously said no debt is fine. But is there a certain kind of metric that you stick to? Is it is it, what what's it based on? Yeah, my metric. I mean, this is me. So it's with I have some people that I partner with that are real debt averse, and they happen to have a lot of cash on hand. Mm -hmm. And so basically, we partner on deals, and we pay cash for the house and don't put any debt on it, which obviously gives us a lot more cash flow immediately. But those yeah. people are rare. L um, less, re less ROI, right? Re less right. return on investment, but obviously higher pure cash flow. Correct. And yep. so you need fewer houses if they're paid for to generate the cash flow you need. Yep. I I didn't have the luxury of having a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines, nor did my family. So I had to start with a lot. Of, I started with 100% leverage, which I don't recommend. But at the time, looking back, I was buying my first house for $70,000. And we right. fixed it up for 15. That's 85. Today, yep. that's, that's a laughable number 15 years later. But right. at the time, it was like, man, I'm, I'm going to borrow a hundred percent. And if this doesn't work, man, I'm going to have to pay this off myself. But the reality is, is if you don't pay too much for the real estate, you should be able to get out and pay the loan off. You might not make any money, but you shouldn't lose any unless you overpaid or you really messed up the renovation somehow. Yeah. So you're, you've mitigated your downside. If you just do one thing correctly, do not overpay for the real estate. <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. Well, one of my rules when I was uh, buying a lot of single family houses and duplexes was uh, each property can't be leveraged over. Uh, it has to be debt service coverage ratio was what I focused on. I didn't focus right. necessarily on LTV because, yeah. you know, values, like you said, you're buying it for 70 grand or you're all in at 70 grand. Well, that's, that number is laughable. What I was more concerned about was a debt service coverage. And, and I was at 175. It had to be 175 or greater debt service coverage ratio. Uh, now, uh, buying multifamily, we definitely get a little bit more aggressive. You know, we're into the 140, 150 debt service coverage ratio. But um, I think as long as you're keeping good, strong, solid cash flow and you're um, just being prudent about what those numbers really are and, and look like and have some good reserves, you'll probably do just fine um, and, and you don't need to worry. I shouldn't say worry, but you don't, you know, if, you, if you're following the right metrics, your leverage isn't going to be out of whack. Yeah. And leverage is always a, a very subjective thing because you're, you're basically getting an appraisal from a third party. Right. And you and I both know some of these appraisals come back and you're like shaking your head. Yeah. Either this is not even close to the ballpark of being accurate and it could be both on the low or the high yeah. side. Yeah. 
Yeah. It really doesn't matter, especially when you're looking at a single family home, it really doesn't matter what the thing is worth. It matters how much you cash flow, right? It matters that you're making money. That's all that matters. And that's why I focused on debt service coverage ratio and still do so much is it really matters how I can pay my debt and how much margin I have there. Yeah. And banks love it when you get more conservative and the more conservative you are, the more they love you. So if yeah, you're not, <laughs> that's if for you're sure. not, yeah, like I said, I don't think I going looking back and borrowing a hundred thousand unsecured, making $80,000 a year was probably the smartest thing to do at the time from a conservative financial position, but it was the smartest thing I could have done by jumping in and getting things done. And really looking back at the risk I had taken, it was virtually zero. Yeah. And that's another thing that listeners, you got to think about too, is what's your risk? What's your risk tolerance? Where are you in life? Um, and, you know, obviously, as long as you're doing things morally, ethically, you know, legally, um, you know, be taking a little bit more risk at times is definitely worth it if it's going to allow you to get the ball moving. And getting the ball moving is the most important thing. Uh, you know, like you, you didn't know, you said earlier, you didn't know what you would be good at and bad at. You knew obviously some things, but you didn't know what you would like and dislike. And you figured it out by actually taking action, getting a deal done. Um, and that's how you figure it out. And you over leveraged it or put a lot of leverage on, I should say. Uh, but again, the, the most important factor right there was that you got started and that, that the numbers still worked, even though you put 100% leverage on it, the numbers still worked and still the deal made sense. So uh, Dave, what's a mistake that you've made and how, how can you pass down what you've learned to our listeners? So oddly enough, one of the bigger mistakes people make is they don't put play enough attention to the insurance um, component mm. of the contract of the uh, obviously of a banker. <laughs> Bankers always, you know, hey, get your get your insurance in place, make sure the coverage is there, and list us as the mortgagee clause. Um, but from the standpoint of when you got a partnership and you got multiple partnerships, uh, sometimes you can kind of toss things to your agent to, that you've trusted to, to do things correctly. Yep. And then you find out on the back end when you have a claim <laughs> that, oh, this wasn't set up properly. And yeah. in, one in, in one instance, we had closed out a house and we bought it, fixed it up. It was a fourplex. Everything was rented. We put the permanent loan on it. 30 days later, I'm watching the television and I see uh, one of those news stories about a fire engine putting out a fire. And I'm like, that looks familiar. Mm. <laughs> so it caught fire. So I'm like, well, no big deal. We got coverage. Well, yeah. my partner and I called each other and essentially found out that the insurance agent titled on the policy a name of another partnership that we were involved in, but it wasn't that partnership. So there were two uh, common partners in there, but there was a third that had nothing to do with it. So the insurance company was basically going to try to deny the claim. Wow. And so we had to go back and go through all these hoops. And, you know, these are little things, but they become bigger things. And at the end, the end of the story is um, not only did this is what I tell people in the book, you know, these this is like one of those worst case scenarios or like, well, this keeps people from doing real estate. But at the end of the day, we were able to sell that building, get the insurance proceeds that we got from the company finally. And we also made a profit even yeah. after all that. So yeah. to me, it's like as ugly as things could possibly get. If you do things correctly, your loss should be zero or minimal. In yep. most cases, you probably will make some money if you've held on to it for very long. 
I mean, we've had a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, we've had our handful of insurance incidences. Um, and we make sure we get good insurance coverage from the beginning. We don't skimp uh, on mm-hmm. our insurance or we try not to. We try to we try to save money, certainly. We don't try to pay the most amount, but we want to make sure that we're covered for the potential hazards that are around. And every single time it's worked out into our favor. Um, so yeah, having insurance, uh, man, I, I actually, uh, helped manage a gal's property. She was based in California. She bought this house, uh, cash and we had a tornado that ripped through the area. And luckily it didn't do amazing amount of damage to her property, but it certainly did some damage, uh, her roof and, you know, some, some other minor things needed to be done. And she, lo and behold, she had no insurance. She probably had about $30,000 worth of damage and had, it didn't put insurance on the house because she bought it for cash. (laughs) And she's like, well, I didn't think in Minnesota, there'll be anything that I would need insurance for. And There's snow in Minnesota too. I hear. <laughs> yeah, it was snow and cold ice, and yeah. ice and yeah, tornadoes, hail, fires, uh, fires, fires. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so there's just a lot of things that can happen. I mean, I had a person that fell asleep and drove through one of my buildings. You know, you just don't know what's going to happen. Freak things happen, and so yeah, having good coverage is so important. Um, all right, Dave, we got to wrap up. This has been fun. And I think people really need to to get your book and, you know, look, and maybe you got retirement all figured out, but I guarantee <laughs> there's somebody in your life that, that doesn't. So middle-class to millionaire, probably a great book uh, to buy. And, and that, you know, we just, we just passed Christmas, but it's never too late to, to give a, a belated Christmas or a birthday gift to somebody. So I think it'd be great to either buy it for yourself and read it or buy it for a gift and, and give it away. But uh, Dave, what beyond your book, what's a favorite book uh, that's affected your life and how can you pass it to our listeners? So oddly enough, in my little short stint, and I don't know if this book's even available, I haven't looked, but uh, there was a book that I read. I always like to read stories about founders of companies, you know, oh, yeah. Yeah. and because it really teaches you that... It, you know, everybody looks at these guys that are billionaires now and say, oh, they mm-hmm. haven't made, but they had their struggles. They had their hard times. Yeah. And so there was one book that was written when I was in my multi-level marketing phase, which was a total disaster. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't lose anything, but I didn't gain anything except some knowledge. Uh, but it was written by um, the guy that you probably remember that invented the term by term insurance and invest the difference if you heard that. Um it's uh, uh, he was a co- a football coach and started a company called Primerica, which ended up being bought by Citibank, and he became a, a billionaire. Um, and basically, the name of the book is "All You Can Do Is All You Can Do, But All You Can Do Is Enough." And I don't know if it's in print anymore, but if you can find that, like in a used bookstore or on Amazon, it's a really good read. Even though it's primarily about his story on starting this company of term insurance. He has his passion, why he did it. He was a football coach. It was a side gig for him. And he he basically took this thing and turned it into a huge financial services company just because he had the passion because his father had died with not enough life insurance. Hmm. And uh, he used that as a motivating factor to, to basically change the whole industry because term insurance was something that was never sold much. 
Really? Oh, yeah. interesting. Uh, that's cool. Uh, well, hopefully listeners can find that book. Yeah, I, I do love CEO and, you know, the, just listening to some of these books that people wrote about starting their companies. I, I, have you ever um, read or listened to the book Shoe Dog? Oh yeah, Phil Knight. Phil Knight. And that's a great book. Just just his struggles. It's amazing. Most people see Phil Knight and think, well, you know, rich guy, which he is now. Yeah. But I mean, he had decades of struggle and barely like barely making it by. So it's just it's just amazing sometimes listening yeah, the, and hearing the, those books. The funniest line in that book I remember right now from that book is uh, he he had on his board of directors, whatever, a lot of people that were pretty rough like him that, you know, hard scrabble. And he said, uh, Nike is the only, when he was still there running it, he said, Nike is the only company where if one of the people on the board yelled out, Hey, butthead, the entire board would turn around and look at him <laughs> and That's say, funny. Hey, are you talking to me? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Who are you talking to? <laughs> oh, that's good. I love it. Um, all right, Dave, last question. What are your three pillars of wealth creation? Okay, well, the first one's obvious, real estate. It's the tool, the vehicle to get me where yeah. I couldn't get without, um, you know, doing the other things that I tried. None of them work. So real estate is the first one. It's the vehicle. But yeah. like I said, I don't have the passion for it. So the next pillar is something called who, not how. And mm. the fact that I could not do the work myself, but I figured out who I could yeah. partner with. And yeah. that was that. that allowed me to scout. And the third one is the power of leverage. Because of because of my mm -hmm. job as a banker, uh, you were getting paid on, you know, I'll just use the going back to the same example, bought the first house for 70, put 15 into it, praised for 115. We just had that house appraised this last year, $325,000, <laughs> and the house is paid off. Wow. And I, and I never put a dime of my own money into that one. It was wow. all borrowed money. So essentially, it's like, that is why real estate is such a powerful tool. Yeah. And, if you don't ever buy something, you don't ever experience it. But literally every single person that's had lived in more than one house can look back years and see the original house they they purchased, see what they bought it for, and see what it's worth today on Zillow or something and say, man, I should have kept that house. And everybody yep. says that, but nobody does it. Yep. Yep. That, and that that's a perfect example of the power of leverage is, is that property right there. That's a, that's yeah. amazing. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I, I really loved hearing the story. And man, congratulations, by the way, going from, you know, just four Xing. And I'm sure you're you're not stopping, right? You're, so no. it's going to be five, ten, six, ten, maybe even 10x. Uh, your 401k that you've been putting in for 38 years versus real estate for 15. Yeah. Uh, and now you're, you're four X uh, that and that 401k. So that's amazing. That's awesome. It's been a fun story. Dave, how can our listeners get in touch with you or learn more about what you got going on? How can they get your book? Uh, the book's on Amazon. So that's easy. Uh, getting in touch with me is easy too, because I'm probably the only David Vernich in America, <laughs> a good Croatian last name. There's lots of Verniches, but David Vernich in Nashville. So hook up with me on LinkedIn. And uh, as a special gift to your listeners, Todd, I'd be willing to if anybody hooks up with me on LinkedIn and just tries to connect with me, I'll send them a free copy. It'd be a PDF, but it'd be a free copy of the book. Oh, that's cool. I really appreciate you doing that. Um, again, 
really thanks uh, for being on the show. Appreciate you and appreciate the time you're able to spend with us. Okay, Todd. Thank you. I appreciate your time as well. Take care. Thanks. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. Your rating review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to venturedproperties.com, venturedproperties.com and download our free ebook uh, on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and, and also look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like, uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go to coachwithdex.com and check that out. And, uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.